As Scott said, those words sound familiar because, of course, these are the words of Jesus on the cross. These are the words written centuries beforehand that were fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus. And today, we are concluding our trip through Galatians with a look at three crucifixions. And after that, we'll be gathering around the Lord's table to proclaim the death of Jesus on the cross. And yet, I believe we will still struggle to fully comprehend just how offensive and brutal and ugly and horrifying the cross was because of the simple fact that we live in a culture that is saturated with beautiful, clean, antiseptic crosses. Look around this sanctuary. You will find many elegant crosses here. Many of you are wearing crosses. If you go home, right, we found that crosses are standard elements of Christian home decor. The cross today has come to be clean and positive and wholesome and symbolize life and hope. But we need to realize that this is quite literally the opposite of everything the cross represented 20 centuries ago. Back then, the cross was a weapon of oppression used by the Roman Empire to, to brutally suppress rebellion. Crucifixion happened to be a cheap, public, and extraordinarily brutal way to die. And then they engineered it to be even more painful. A person on the cross would be painfully gasping for breath for days. They would slowly suffocate as exhaustion overwhelmed the instinct to live. The cross served to publicly humiliate and destroy enemies of the empire in a way that was meant to deter anyone from ever rebelling against Rome. For a Jew, crucifixion represented the curse of God. But we should recognize that the cross was so grotesque that it was actually unacceptable in polite Roman society to use the word cross. They would instead refer to hanging someone on the unlucky tree. That's how obscene the cross is. The cross was a horror, and we struggle to understand that. I think our, our closest modern comparisons might include things like lynchings or Nazi gas chambers or ISIS beheadings. And yet, as offensive as the cross was, Paul concludes his letter to the Galatians by repeatedly pointing to the cross of Christ. He is offending the sensibilities of his readers over and over to make it abundantly clear that the only basis for a transformed, spirit-filled, godly life today and an eternal life in the presence of God forever is the cross of Christ and three crucifixions that took place there. Paul concludes with Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. What we have here is Paul's closing summation, which he personally hand-wrote in order to prove the authenticity of his letter. The earlier sections of the letter had been dictated to a colleague, which was normal in those days, but here Paul takes over. He exclaims in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And in these verses, he summarizes the main themes of his letter. He recaps the most important points for, for every Christian who might be tempted to add to the core truth of the gospel. And it all hinges on three crucifixions that he mentions in verse 14. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The first of these crucifixions is, of course, the crucifixion of Christ. Christians in Galatia were under assault by Jewish Christians who wanted every member of the congregation to conform to the rules and practices of historic Judaism. And Paul reveals that their motivation for this wasn't some misplaced zeal for godliness. Instead, it was shame about Christ's cross. Now, we don't have time to dig into lots and lots of history, but it is a reality that for 20 centuries, Christ's cross has been a source of shame and embarrassment to false teachers within the church. I've already explained to you how the cross was objectively offensive in both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture because it represented things like revolution, oppression, disgrace, failure, and death. It symbolized the weakness and the hopelessness of mankind in the face of a seemingly invincible empire unlike any that the world had ever seen to that point. But the theological significance of the cross of Christ was even more shameful and it sparked persecution from the Jews. In verse 12, Paul explains the real issue that's at the heart of all the problems in Galatia. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, the false teachers were afraid of persecution because the Jewish establishment hated the message of the cross. And the issue is, of course, that fundamentally we all want to make our right standing with God something that we control. Right? We want it to be something where we determine our fate and our future. Right? This is our most sort of fundamental sin and desire is we want to control our future ourselves, and the cross rejects that possibility. That's why it's hated by everyone who thinks they've got it all figured out. See, God had given the law of Moses to the Jewish people, all 613 rules of it, to demonstrate just how absolutely holy he was. And at the very core of the law is this repeated call for the people of Israel to be holy because God is holy and to be holy like God is holy. And the point is that it's impossible for a human being to be good enough righteous enough, holy enough to meet God's standard. And yet, 
somehow the Jewish establishment thought they had it all figured out. They just need to follow enough rules and they could get it done. But we can't ever get it figured out enough to do enough good works, to to live such a perfect, sin-free life that we are able to enter into the blazing, white-hot presence of purity and holiness of the Almighty Creator of the universe. And page after page of the Old Testament, book after book, century after century, reveals the people of God, the ones who who had been most present the miraculous works of God at the Exodus where he was very present with them and did all kinds of things to crush the Egyptian uh, nation. They had the most incentive, the most motivation to believe in the power of God and the holiness of God, and yet they had failed to satisfy the standards of the law because it's impossible. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is the consistent message of the Old Testament and the New. Only the cross of Christ can save us in this offended, right-thinking Jews and enlightened, Judaizing Christians 2,000 years ago. And it still pains legalistic Christians today, right? There are many Christians today who say they believe in the cross of Christ and yet functionally they live a pattern of rules and, and policies and habits that they believe are necessary, mandatory, in order to get right with God. But the cross of Christ is the evidence that we're never going to be good enough to earn our way into God's presence and that we don't have to be. Right, The cross of Christ proves that we don't have to be perfect because Jesus Christ, the eternal and holy and perfect Son of God, stepped into our world, took on a a human nature and body, lived that perfect life that we can't, fulfilled all those requirements of the law perfectly, on our behalf, and then died on the cross for us. And so even though we're the ones who keep rebelling against God, it was Jesus who was nailed to the rebel's cross. Even though we're the ones who owe a terrible debt to God because of our sin, Jesus is the one who hung bleeding on that cross to pay our debt with his innocent blood. This is what we proclaim today. This is what we will gather to remember and celebrate And that all anybody needs to do to receive forgiveness of every sin, to experience eternal life, is to accept Christ's sacrifice and believe in Him as Lord and Savior. Paul tells us in Romans 3, verses 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. God's forgiveness comes exclusively through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The cross is our hope, and it is our only hope. God offers this gift to us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Not because of what we do or all the rule following we do, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. And let's be honest, this drives us crazy. Right, Because even for the most advanced Christian, the most theologically astute Christian, we still fundamentally, some part of us, really wants to just save ourselves and justify ourselves. And so the cross of Christ was deeply offensive to the Jewish leaders because it completely destroyed that concept of being able to save yourself by good behavior 
and rule following. Jews who became Christians would be persecuted for emphasizing the cross of Christ because it rejected saving yourself by the law. The false teachers in Galatia wanted to avoid that persecution. They were ashamed of the cross of Jesus. It's not that they really followed the law all that closely themselves. They just wanted to fit in with the prevailing culture by downplaying the bloody, brutal reality of the cross. Which sounds familiar in our culture today and in our churches today. You see, they just wanted to be bragging about how they got all those Gentile Christians into the Jewish fold. Verse 13 reports, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Right? Paul is circling back to the presenting problem in this letter, Right, that, that push and pressure within the Galatian church by these Judaizing leaders and false teachers to say that Christians needed to be circumcised, that you had to become Jewish in order to be properly Christian. But as Paul says, for these false teachers, the issue wasn't theological. It was just about avoiding persecution. It was about religious appearances, religiosity, churchianity, not real devotion to God. And their actions were wrong and their motivations were wrong, but we should also recognize that we can easily fall into these same traps. We can easily fall into a kind of cultural Christianity that that tries to add requirements to the cross. They try to add things like proper dress in church on Sunday, proper dress during the week, right? The, making sure you have the right music style in church or entertainment choices throughout the week, having the one right parenting approach of the month. We try to add these things to the cross of Christ and say, well, to be a proper Christian, you've got to do this or that. And we need to resist these temptations because salvation is not about the cross plus some other stuff. Salvation is about the cross, period. Christ's cross is the pride of true believers, as Paul professes in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the things that make you proud, the things you talk about, the things you promote about yourself, and realize that the cross of Christ should be the only things that Christians are bragging about. Now, why would we brag about a Roman torture device when we have so many good things to brag about, right? We have our personal accomplishments and great homes and cars and jobs and and degrees and so forth. But but as, as the church, we have beautiful buildings and we have great Christian jewelry and music and art and replacements for every other element of culture. We have a Christian flavor of it. And we've got all our good deeds and we've got our, all our hard work, blessing and taking care of those who are in need. We have a lifetime of committed service in the church. Why not brag about these things? Why brag in the cross? Because the cross is so much more than anything we can ever experience or do ourselves. The cross testifies to God's tremendous love for each and every one of us, regardless of our background or our situation. The cross testifies to God's gracious and abundant provision for every aspect of our spiritual lives. The cross testifies to the enormous value that God places on every human life. 
The cross testifies to the fundamental dignity of every human being, the truth that all humans are created equally in the image of God and the desires to be reconciled to them through the cross. Right? We can brag about the cross because the cross is where the Son of God sacrificed himself for us. Right Here is Christ who is present at creation, who quite literally holds the whole universe together, and yet he died on the cross for you and for me. That's something to brag about. Right? We boast in the cross because it's our certificate of adoption by God. We boast in the cross because it proves that Jesus is our brother. Romans 8, 14, and 15 explain, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the crucifixion of Christ wipes our slate clean, validates the very meaning and purpose and value of our life, and assures us of eternal life. And it results in two further crucifixions that should forever alter our lives once we accept Jesus. One is the crucifixion of the world. We live in a very odd time culturally. I don't know whether you've ever noticed it, but there's sort of this inherent contradiction for the way most of us proclaim things in our culture, right? On the one hand, our culture trumpets how we are free to do anything and everything we want, and it's all right in our own eyes, and we should do it, and none of it's bad. And yet, at the same time, we are constantly claiming that despite that freedom over here, everything is determined for us. Everything's been determined by our birth or by our financial status or the things that are, that are wrong in our lives, right? We believe that, that, that there's this narrative that says we are defined and trapped by our, our bank balance, our education, our genetics, our family history, our mistakes, right? Do you get the contradiction there? On the one hand, I'm free to do anything I want. On the other hand, every problem is somebody else's fault. I'm a victim of my circumstances, and I am defined by what's going on around me and the forces that I can't resist. The world around us, including many Christians, believes that people are fully identified by categories like profession, background, education, illness, sin, shame, sexuality, or some form of status, right? Family, marital, etc. We believe that we are what we are because we are born that way or because we had a bad childhood or because we're genetically disposed to some kind of habit or addiction or because we have an illness or disability or because we are just simply too old to change. We think the world has been determined for us. But the cross of Christ says that's all a lie. Right, verse 14 says, If we're believers in Christ, the world with all of its temptations and all of its restrictions is ultimately dead to us. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me. The world's power and authority over our lives has been destroyed by the cross of Christ. The power for others to define and control us has quite literally been crucified on the same cross that Jesus was. Now, the world 
still has a lot of influence. It still tempts us powerfully. It abuses us frequently. It lies to us continuously. But its power is broken. Thanks to the cross of Christ, the world can't make us do anything anymore. It can entice us. It can encourage us. It can fool us. It can convince us we have no power. But it's been crucified. We already have in Christ everything we need to deal with the things in the world. Titus 2.11-14 describes this power that we've been given to defeat the world's temptations and forces. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right, We often speak of grace in the context of salvation, right, the moment in which we receive forgiveness of sins, but here we are speaking of the grace that sanctifies us, the grace that transforms our lives. When we accept Christ, the Spirit of God fills our hearts, and His grace empowers us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to renounce the power of the world in our lives, not out of some form of compulsion or some futile desire to save ourselves, but out of love and gratitude for what God has done for us and what He continues to do in our lives. But this transformation, this life doesn't just happen automatically, right? We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit through the practice of spiritual disciplines. Things like regular Bible reading and study, frequent worship, regular prayer, thinking about and meditating on God's Word, regular service to the church, ministry to those who are in need, regular financial giving to the work of God's kingdom. These are the building blocks of a relationship with the Spirit that's transformational. And if these are concepts that are new to you or you'd like to know more about, right? these are so crucial for that that work of the Spirit in our lives. At the end of September, we will begin on Sunday mornings during the Bible study hour. Summit Discipleship, the very first course, walks through spiritual transformation, the life in the Spirit, these habits and patterns a Christian should follow to work with the Spirit. Because the world has been crucified to us, but we need to realize that and live that way. And because the world has been crucified to us, we need to realize that we are no longer defined by our sin or by our mistakes or by our past. That the labels of the world are not how God thinks about us. And so we should learn to think about ourselves the way God does. The world around us is is filled with this sort of poisonous identity politics It is offering us endless excuses for why we are the way we are, but all of that has been crucified, and we are free and able to live a life that honors God, the God who sets us free. Will we mess up from time to time? Yep, we will. But through the cross of Christ, those failures don't define us either. God's forgiveness is always available whenever we truly turn away from our sin and repent of it and ask for his forgiveness. 
And that brings us to the final crucifixion, and that crucifixion is our own. Paul concludes by describing our crucifixion, our new creation. See, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are crucified with him, and we are freed from the world's power, as I've been discussing. Note the very end of verse 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Right? We have been crucified. We have been crucified to the world. Romans 6, 6 and 7 expand on this reality. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. At the cross of Christ, all who follow him have been crucified to the world. From the world's perspective, we are dead. No longer subject to its patterns, systems, and standards, and so we should probably stop being surprised when the world tries to bury us, because we're dead. As we grow in our new life in Christ, we're going to be opposed, harassed, troubled by the world and the systems of the world. That was the thing the false teachers just couldn't handle. But it's okay to be opposed, to be troubled, to be persecuted, because we're new creations in Christ. In verse 15, realize he is talking about you and me when he says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that's you. You're the new creation. You have been crucified. You are a new creation. As Paul said earlier in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives within us and defines us in God's eyes. Rules and rituals and pasts and processes are all irrelevant to the Christian because we are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 celebrates, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is who you are in Jesus. You, your identity is not about your job or your lack thereof or your, your zip code or address or what side of the highway you live on. It's not about your family situation or your, your physical or mental health or your bank balance or the, or the success and good behavior of your kids. Your identity is Christ. And don't let anyone persuade you otherwise. From the cross, all the blessings of God's peace, mercy, and grace rain down upon true disciples of Jesus. In verse 16, Paul offers a conditional blessing. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. God's blessing is for those who habitually live this identity as new creations in Christ who live lives that consistently sow to the Spirit and reflect genuine repentance. If you are lacking in, in the perception of peace and mercy, we need to examine. You need to examine how are you walking? Are you walking by this rule? Are you walking in light of being a new creation in Christ? Are you walking in a way that radically turns away from the sins and indulgences of the world and represents a real desire to follow and become more like Jesus? 
The Israel of God refers to Galatians 4, where Paul describes true Christ followers as the children of the Jerusalem above. Peace and mercy are for the church when she authentically obeys and imitates Christ. But, but Paul isn't talking about physical peace. Let's be clear on that. He is speaking of supernatural peace, the peace of God that sustains us in the midst of the worst kind of chaos and persecution and warfare. How do we know this? Because verse 17 immediately points to Paul's own extensive suffering for the gospel. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul describes those marks in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Paul experienced the persecution that those false teachers were afraid to experience. And he could do it because he was living a crucified life. He suffered willingly for the joy of the cross that is expressed to these three crucifixions. And, and despite all that he suffered, Paul had great peace, the peace of God that comes only from the work of the Holy Spirit, which transcends all of his suffering, all of his persecution, that transcends all human understanding. This is what God offers to all who choose to truly follow Jesus. He asked for God's grace in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And so as today we complete the letter to the Galatians, I pray that throughout this process we have each grown in our understanding and our faithfulness and our, and our courage to hold on to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, to hold on to the cross of Christ that is so embarrassing, that is so shameful to many. That we have grown in our desire to live a spirit-filled life of genuine discipleship in light of these crucifixions of Christ, the world, and ourselves. Won't you please pray with me? Father God, help us to just understand the obscenity of the cross and the marvel and beauty of what you did there. Well, God, help us to embrace the sacrifice of your Son anew, that as we prepare to celebrate and proclaim his death, that it would take on a new life for us, a new sense of, of vividness and reality. And Lord, if there are any here who have not embraced the cross, who have not accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who have not accepted your gift of grace, who have not put their faith in your Son as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would accept that gift, that they would put their faith in Christ, that they would embrace the cross, that they would receive your Spirit and begin to live that life of transformation. Lord God, help us to never be ashamed of the cross and the very simple yet ugly message there of a Savior who saved us through his own death, through his own blood, to pay the penalty for our sins that we cannot pay ourselves. Lord God, help us to live lives that truly represent that the world has been crucified to us. Lord, I pray that if there are any here struggling with, 
with a sin or with a with a force in the world that has just been crushing them and pushing them down or, or a voice that's been speaking into their life saying they are less than a beautiful child of God adopted by you through the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray that they would lay this down before you. Lord, hear our prayers as we lay before you the things that have been holding us back, the things of the world that have prevented us from truly living a life crucified to the world. Father God, I pray that your spirit would speak into the hearts of each and every person here who is a follower of Jesus. Fill their hearts with the knowledge that they are not whatever the labels of the world say they are. That they are your son or daughter. That they are a new creation. That the guilt and shame of the past is gone. That your son is who you see when you look at them. Lord God, help us to live lives of faithful discipleship, following your Son, filled with abundant peace and grace and mercy because of these crucifixions, Lord. Help us live as that new creation and may honor and glorify you every day of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.